perhaps that's the inner urbanist in me, which is that you can't be an auteur anymore. Maybe you could at one time with regard to cities, that in the end, the city will win. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with uh, Roger Sherman, architect and urbanist who's interested in the visible and invisible logic of cities. Roger joins us today to discuss his role as Senior Director of Urban Strategy at Gensler. Roger, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's, um, it's a fantastic title. You know, we've been out here talking to some people, um, and it's my uh, initial observation that Southern California has among the better titles in this line of work. Um, we've spoken with Christopher Hawthorne, of course, now the Chief Design Officer of Los Angeles. Um, so I want to start, Roger, by asking you, what is a... What does a director of urban strategy do on a day-to-day basis? To a certain extent, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I don't plot out problems to solve. I stand by the, I stand by the dock, or by the uh, train platform, and I wait for things to come by, um, and see what's passing, and using my own homing instincts, uh, figure out what to what to jump onto. Uh, really, I think it it sounds rather uh, reactive, but I also think that in my old age, I've really learned to embrace uh, opportunity and circumstance, not to underestimate the importance of those, because those are things that the city brings to you, as opposed to your deciding what the city should be. And I, I think this is one of the reasons that I'm really critical of the new urbanism, which is that I don't want to be preached to. Uh, I don't think that I ever really took a, a point of view that I knew more than the city did. I always found that my source of knowledge and fascination was what was already happening in the city, like a treasure chest, and that all you needed to do is just dive in and see what you could find, and you would produce ideas from that um, abundance of, of, of uh, phenomena. And is this portfolio at Gensler, is this primarily focused on Southern California or do you get further afield as well? No, I do. I have gotten somewhat further afield. I've worked um, on a number of projects in China. Ironically, I don't really find them quite as interesting because you're not really privy to a lot of the machinations that underlie uh, your involvement. Whereas in Los Angeles, because you can really get more deeply embedded in the politics, I call it, um, well, I like fishing. Uh, I, I view working in the city a little bit like deciding where, where the best place is along the river to fish. And I found that as a strategist and an urbanist um, that you have to fish, you have to move up as far upstream as you can because um, in order to really yield the really good stuff, you need to get involved very, very early on, see what's coming and then follow it until um, it's ripe and so um, most of my work has tended to be more local and, or most of the work that I'm, I've really become interested in has become more local to Los Angeles or I would say the Southwest at this point. Um, and that in a weird way, um, you know, it's, there are certain elements of Los Angeles which are true that used to be claimed in the late 20th century, which is that Los Angeles is really a microcosm of the problems of the world. And so you can find all of the problems of the world or most of them 
in Los Angeles. You don't necessarily need to, to find them elsewhere, even if later they turn out to be exportable um, to other places. Los Angeles has this history that you reference of being a place that exports a lot of ideas about the city uh, and has really become, you know, outsized in its influence, both in the kind of um, the kind of the imaginary of the city, the images that the city's putting out in the world, um, thinking about uh, the role of film, television, this kind of cultural production. Uh, so in, in going upstream, um, in your work at Gensler, are you um, going so far upstream as, as to be an instigator of urban projects, or are they things that are already uh, somehow available uh, that you're early engaged with? Uh, I'm definitely an instigator. I, I realize in retrospect that I, um, that I was hired to be what they use in corporate terms. They call a disruptor. Um, I didn't go in deliberately with the intent of disrupting things. It just so happened that my taste ran toward things that um, that others in the firm were letting just drop drop between the fielders because they were looking for things where they already knew uh, their appetite was pre was prescripted. Um, they they knew that they want they many of them know that they want to do office buildings or they are working on workplace design. And uh, there's an emphasis in my office. I don't want to get too far afield of why we're talking here, but it is relevant to this, which is that our office is organized by expertise or what they call practice area. There's airports, there's, um, there's a workplace. There are three studios just dedicated to interior workplace design. Um, there are, um, there's also lifestyle, which is retail, basically like retail malls, that, that kind of thing. Um, and there's, there's hospitality, which is hotels and so on. It works very well as a firm for the purposes of marketing and for business because you can market yourself as being an expert in a certain area. But in practice, it's not necessarily servicing issues of urbanism very well because of, it puts things obviously in kind of silos. So even uh, even urbanism had uh, had a category, and that's kind of where my entry portal was at Gensler, in something they call planning and urban design. Um, but it was really intended to be conceived of by Gensler as a as a sort of stepchild to a lot of the practice areas that needed to do some master planning in order to get to the commission for the building itself. So my brand is really less urban design by intent and more looking at urbanization, the city as a phenomenon, and then sort of doing a kind of uh, Aikido jujitsu with a lot of those forces, um, which really fascinates me. So that's why I say I didn't, I didn't go in intending to be a disruptor. It's simply that I started finding opportunities that come by Gensler every day and, and cherry picking the ones that I could see had a lot of possibility for them. So, Though I was working on some larger projects and things that would be strictly thought of as urban design initially, I found myself actually getting involved in a lot of things which are in the area of what's called community impact and social impact. Because Gensler, which is very interesting, like an anteater, it follows capital and the emergence of, of impact investors, of philanthropic um, investors and um, uh, um, really has led to it to the opening of another set of opportunities through in many cases um, some of the same clients but through the side door of the client 
through their corporate social responsibility programs rather than through their front door, which is where Genzer would be conventionally making money. Um, so that both doors can be open and they had never seen that door before. Um, so um, I, I, um, so I've found myself doing a lot of work um, on permanent supportive housing and affordable housing, which is relatively new, shouldn't have been as new because the problem has been lingering for a while and has really just gotten out of control. And then we've gotten involved in a lot of other projects that are connected to the problem of, of the affordability of housing um, in, in the way of, let's say, at-risk teen centers and homeless drop-in centers and um, sort of things of that nature um, that, all, that all basically tie to pro the issues of equity that have now come up in the wake of COVID, but, but had been there all along. So I see these things and I see the housing as an urban problem not as a as a typological problem per se and so i'm interested in it insofar as housing is is one of the if not the most important building block of a city and i'm more interested in housing from the standpoint of how it is how it represents the dna of a city than i am um as an individual typology we've had um you know first of all in our experience in Southern California, uh, experience in Los Angeles, of course, you can't escape the, the pressures, the societal um, economic uh, political pressures around access to housing. You see it on, on the street every day. Uh, in our conversations with um, Michael Maltzen, your colleague Dana Cuff, it's also present in the, obviously, the thinking and in the practice of, of urbanists working in Los Angeles. So um, when I first came to know Ginsler, I, I, I thought of it as a uh, a, a company that had uh, somehow originated in California, Bay Area, I think, if I remember it right. Um, and I've always associated, in part because I was spending a decade in Chicago at the beginning of my career, where the, the Gensler you know, brand in Chicago, its office was heavily into what we now think of as a kind of design research, you know, a kind of a lot of workplace measurements, a lot of empirically based. I mean, this might be a stretch. Tell me if, if I'm getting this over, if I'm overstating this, but in certain aspects, Gensler's offices, some of their um, practice areas, um, they, they almost can be understood as a kind of IDEO for architecture. Is that is that fair? I think uh, to be brutally honest about it, um, I think they probably there there was a time in which um, the R and D IDEO model of research and development in office place design was more strongly. Um, it was sort of more strongly situated or embedded in the practice itself. I think that it's a little bit um, more a product of moving from uh, adolescence into middle age that Gensler was seen as, as an innovator in that area and is now um, though it, it, it does have an investment in continuing to do that in principle, I think has had a natural inclination to settle into uh, being comfortable with having expertise. Um, so there are efforts at present, for instance, um, where Gensler is, clients are reaching out to Gensler to figure out how to deal, what the real import of the COVID crisis is on workplace design and so on. And we're, we, we are doing that. Um, I, I do think that that's a bit of more of an exceptional instance in which necessity breeded invention, but I think in general, uh, there tends to be a little bit more, um, 
I don't want to say complacency, but probably a little bit more satisfaction in the fact that we are experts in something rather than having the pebble in our shoe to, um, to want to continue to kind of ask what's next in, in that area. And so I think that for me, uh, personally, one of the things that has been very uh, unique has been that um, the area of affordable housing and permanent supportive housing and community investment, this literally started with my having arrived there. It was just a coincidence that, uh, that the regional managing principal, Rob Jernigan, said, we are just simply too big not to be dealing with a big problem like this. And that the architects such as Mass Design in Boston, uh, Mass Architects, it is not, the problems they are dealing with are not problems that, that can be solved at scale by a boutique firm. That it actually, that there may be innovation occurring at that level, but we have an obligation as a 50 office um, firm that has 6,000 employees across the globe at dealing with global problems and using Los Angeles as a laboratory to do it. And this, so this, this was a new opening field that we had no ex experience in. So it was perfect for me uh, because I like being out at the front edge. You know, I don't want to be comfortably at the back of the line. You mentioned the um, uh, the, the mass uh, mass design group, mass design collective, which is, I think, uh, among the more innovative kind of new, newer models of kind of social impact through through design. Um, and uh, you reference the term boutique, right? So, in that regard, the the notion of boutique strikes me as a maybe one way of characterizing your role. So, you, of course, as an architect and urbanist, had been up. Uh, running successfully under your own name for a couple of decades, had a, a national profile as an urbanist and educator, uh, were active in publishing. Um, and at some point, um, the notion of embedding within this larger corporate structure, thousands of employees, dozens of offices, uh, became appealing to you. And I, I'd like to hear from you, Roger, m more about what what precisely was on offer, what precisely have you seen there by virtue? You've mentioned the scale uh, the enormity of impact, that kind of potential, um, and also your role. I, I take it from your comments that you were being invited in to continue to disrupt within Gensler in a way that it, it had reached a kind of stability or a kind of middle age. But I presume you were also invited in to bring a, an explicitly urban portfolio to build expertise around you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what they thought or whether they had any specific expectation about what would transpire. I think it was a little bit like, let's just drop him in. Um, it was, a, I don't want to say it was quite like the Hunger Games, but let's just drop him in and see what happens. Uh, I don't, the funny part is that I don't think I had any awareness of, of the level of risk that I was probably under at the time of uh, that this would indeed succeed at all. I think that probably pe people, I thought it was fine, you know, that I'd be well taken care of. It was a stable environment. But in point of view, you really have to prove your worth. Um, and I think you probably are on, you know, you have a certain amount of time to start showing what you can do. But I fortunately was naive enough not to be aware of any of that. And so I just sort of took my time and did my thing and kind of started, started really getting traction after two years. Um, when the this kind of community impact and permanent supportive housing thing started to transpire. And so I began to see the opportunity emerge um, for a, a, a variety of different reasons. One is that it really appealed to me um, 
it really appealed to me personally. I think it always has to be that. I think it also changed the value structure from that about um, how much profit you are making to other forms of valuation um, that, that the firm also thought was important, which is the, at a certain level, they may have considered it just a very high level form of business development. But at a certain point, I think they began to understand that it also um, could change their culture and attract uh, people to come there, to work there, because they actually had different motives than, than others they had been traditionally attracting. They also saw that the world was changing um, in a dramatic way, even across the time that I was, that I was there. Um, at the same time, I began to realize that I needed to set things up in a way that I was comfortable with at Gensler, find my own space there in a way that had never had not really been done before. So even though right now I'm still in one of the studios, it's actually called Lifestyle, per se, and it doesn't really um, aptly refer to what I do. I, I have over the last couple of years been able to build a group of of six people into effectively um, a kind of um, form of skunk works um, at the office that has a very direct relationship with the regional managing principal who provides us with um, connections. I have to go out and find and make a lot of projects happen myself uh, with relationships that I had built while I was my own boutique practice before. But in effect, we I look at Gensler as, as providing me a a bully pulpit or a platform of legitimacy that doesn't change who I am. It just means that people listen to me more and believe me more than they did five years ago. I, initially, I was very angry about it because I felt like, you know, I'm saying the same things. Why are you listening now? But then I began to realize uh, that it was an opportunity for me to pick up the club and just that I, um, in a funny Trumpian way, I could, I could literally say anything. And people, no matter how outrageous it was, if it was coming from Gensler, they would shake their head, nod their head and say, wow, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And so um, that's a pretty good feeling because you realize that you can actually, um, instead of asking for permission, um, you can just go ahead and do something and, 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 you know, that there's a kind of, um, that it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's kind of one of the, the amazing things about Gensler is that it's kind of like Wile E. Coyote. You just go running off the cliff and you're constantly in that moment where you're hovering over the abyss below, um, but you haven't dropped. And so, um, I, I do operate that way because, um, there is a tolerance for risk when it's really smartly, regarded um, there and and the risk is we haven't done this before um, how do you know this is going to work out and so I just it's either naivety and naivete confidence or both that I if I feel enough conviction it gives me the courage to know that I should you know that I should follow through on it and it will somehow pay off at at some given time I don't know if that's a little too abstract or whether I'm answering your question 
<laughs> I like your description of your um, kind of uh, irrational confidence, confidence not buoyed by any particular empirical evidence, but, but conviction, belief, belief system. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Skunk Works. This was, of course, the uh, kind of World War II uh, uh, Lockheed R&D, you know, kind of program, which has now become a generalizable category. Uh, small teams organized, semi-secrecy, but organized around a particular outcome or set of outcomes. Uh, among the premises I associate with the Skunk Works is the notion that small team of people left on their own should be able to do anything in about two weeks. Um, fail, but fail quickly. That's right. And, and I would think that the Skunk Works coming originally out of, was it, I think it was Burbank. I think, I think it was the, yeah, uh, the I think Lockheed so. plant at Burbank and then has become, it was adopted by Steve Jobs and Apple as a kind of aphorism for how they're, how they're organized. So, so I'm, I'm interested in, um, you mentioned earlier, Roger, the, uh, the platform, um, that you occupy allows you a kind of window into all number of things. You know, I mean, you, you've talked about the idea of practice groups and the idea of the traditional organization of uh, professional services in architecture and urban design. Uh, I, I remember having a conversation with Joe Brown at a moment in time where he described a uh, history in which, you know, uh, people used to hire firms based on professional identity. They would hire an architect or a landscape architecture firm. And then at some point firms became multidisciplinary, right? They had, they necessarily had to be crossing those disciplines. And more recently, um, you know, he would argue that, um, uh, pe people are really interested in the delivery of complete environments. They're less interested in what disciplines organize those environments. But from that point of view, in the context of Gensler's discrete, you know, uh, pr practice base areas of expertise, um, the urban is notoriously messy, as you've already implied. It's, it, it connects to everything, potentially. Um, but share with us a couple of examples, an anecdote or two of the, the kinds of windows that you have into the workings of a city like Los Angeles. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you, you get to see all, all, number of, um, all number of urban sausage-making uh, experiments uh, in, ver in various degrees of development. So tell, tell us about a couple of those that have caught your attention in the past five years. Sure. Um, one of the things that's been just as a kind of um, um, prologue to this, one of the things that I've that I've learned is that um, I found that we've been successful because of the reputation we've quickly developed for being innovative. So we seek problems that are sticky, that cannot be solved by other architects or very easily using pre-gone formulas. So in that sense, we're running against the grain of what Gensler does very well. Um, we like we thrive in environments in which there's a problem that is really sticky or wicked that cannot be um, that cannot be easily thought through. So um, and and the general homeless area is one of them because the you know amongst other things you can't find land for it. The units are being built for uh, $550,000 or higher, even $700,000 for a 350 square foot unit, which is more money than people are paying for a whole single family house out in Riverside who are not homeless. Uh, our own employees could not afford homes that cost as much as what the homeless are being housed in. There's a whole um, confluence of problems that are really difficult to reconcile with one another that made it kind of perfect for me to figure out how to go in, stick my finger in it and start wiggling around trying to figure out where the nexus, nexus point of the problem was. So I'm gonna give you a couple of examples um, of just a couple of examples. Almost every project involves something like that for us right now. But there, one of them is one that we evolved 
that um, did not have a client in advance, which is no-no, major no-no with Gensler. You never would do that. You have the general idea is you stand at the end of the stream and you wait for the clients to flow into your mouth, right? Um, or you, the bird brings the worms to the chicks. And I couldn't afford to do that. And I always, as a firm, I didn't even realize that it was unusual when I was on my own, but I create the client. My firm was based upon, was predicated on the idea of creating the project. So um, there are numerous examples of this, but one that stands out is called Urban Awning, which was a solution to a problem that was so smart that it would create clients because of its inherent um, uh, uh, kind of, uh, its inherent intelligence, um, and um, and usefulness in solving problems that nobody else could solve. It was um, result of a conversation between um, myself, Rob Jernigan, Tom Gilmore, who is a prominent developer, but a kind of cowboy developer in downtown who was responsible for bringing back downtown LA by changing laws about the reuse of old bank buildings. Um, and a guy named Rick Jacobs, who runs a special um, mayoral private nonprofit called the Accelerator for America, which is basically a group of uh, very successful businessmen who take on special projects for the mayor. And the idea was really to re to fundamentally take apart and put back together again um, how we build permanent supportive housing to to dramatically reduce the cost of um, of the housing. So we basically looked at all of the different hurdles and things that were contributing to cost. And then we basically found a way of undoing each of those knots. In other words, of how to hack it, hack the public policy in order to avoid getting into those, having to cross through those problems that and trigger a lot of the things that induced, um, that induced the, um, the increases in time and cost. And uh, without getting into specifics about what it what it looks like, um, it basically involved looking at how to build only two stories high, which wouldn't require elevators, not using any mechanical electrical, uh, sorry, mechanical systems, but rather to use passive systems of uh, environmental control since we are in Southern California, <clears throat> after all. Um, it involved using uh, a giant shed roof that like a butler building that would cover just provide weather protection for all of the housing that was underneath it thereby enabling all the sheathing of the buildings that were under it to be non-weatherized and a lot less expensive to use um, panelized prefabricated construction which subsequently attracted the national carpenters union to join us on board and to to basically offer to work on the project through their foundation um, because they wanted to be associated with the solution as well. And, and so um, the prototype that we developed turned out to have really smart applicability even to big box structures that already that were being abandoned by big box retailers with the shift in the retail economy. So that all we needed to do was just start cutting holes in the big boxes and putting our units inside and using that as a micro environment. Um, for kind of creating an urban urban oasis. So there were different types of sites that were implied and made eligible for applicability that ordinarily would not be sites that permanent supportive or affordable housing developers would otherwise be interested in. 
because they were only looking at sites that were of a certain type and already uh, very expensive in cost. And so it um, is a little bit, it was a little bit of a process of like stone soup where, you know, you, you build interest in the project as you come, as you start with an idea and that you accrete momentum through the idea rather than through your expertise. It's how we solved it. And it also is everybody likes to be in on a game. If you start, you know, if you start a game, people want to come to the table to play. And so it's been, it's been very exciting. And we're, we're right now in the process of looking at um, three specific sites that we're going to be prototyping the project in um, that uh, as a result of that kind of process, which has happened over the course of about, I would say just over about a year and a half, year and a quarter, something like that. Fascinating. Um, so it's Urban Awning. It's called Urban Awning. It was actually based on a project that Rob and I remembered from the 80s by a guy named Brian Murphy, who built a house for himself out in Topanga Canyon, where he just built a, but, a butler building roof, you know, you know the type, open on all sides, and then built a bunch of, of type five, you know, stick built rooms underneath it that were all covered, but they were all weatherized from rain and wind and took advantage of the mild temperature. So it was like a micro environment um, within it. And one of the other things that was learned by that was that the key to the, pro to the housing crisis is to think about density in a different way than planners do, which is not in terms of regulating by units, but thinking about beds, people. Because if you think about people, um, then the notion of density is different because a building, if you think about it as units, you, you'll automatically end up with a four or five story structure. But if you think about it as a, at a molecular level, as beds, you can rethink the problem in a different way where it's about accommodating the number of beds in a more efficient way. One of the other things that, that this involves in the cost savings is whether or not when you have a homeless problem where three people are dying on the streets every single week. Um, um, isn't it important to simply get somebody into a unit where they have, they want privacy, they want their own bathroom and kitchen, but beyond that, do they need to have everything else? Do they need to have 10 lineal feet of closet and the ability to walk all the way around their bed as the regulations dictate and cost money? Or can you begin to think about the problem of homelessness is also coupled with loneliness and whether or not living spaces can therefore be reassigned to collective use, um, as with um, a lot of co-living pro projects you see, um, where people, where all of that um, space is collectivized, is kind of ganged together under the big roof, where you have, um, you have landscape, you have access to sun, but also to shade and shelter from rain. And thereby you're able to make the units as small as is necessary, which is as small as 175 square feet and um, as large as a unit for three people at 350 square feet. And you're literally getting in the same number of people as a building that would be twice as large and twice as expensive, uh, which is the cost that it is today. So, um, so there are a lot of things that, that kind of started, um, sort of forming around that I think one of the other interesting things that went, was that when the carpenters, just to finish out the story, when the carpenters got involved because they were attracted by the prototype, 
uh, along the lines of Stone Soup, they said, well, we have a training facility in Las Vegas where we train our young carpenters how to prefabricate metal panels. Why don't we build a mock-up of the three unit types, a slice through your project in our factory, um, which is a very, turns out to be a very high-tech factory. And then we will fly the mayor and the city council out and all of the other housing officials to see how this new prototype can be built much more cheaply in their districts and so on. And that's in effect what happened. It's just off the edge of the runway in Vegas. It's there for people to visit. We, we take people out there socially distanced now to show them when we've been using it as a marketing tool. But again, it's, it's this beautiful way in which a certain idea starts to gather, it really starts to gather energy about itself and develop its own momentum if the idea is powerful enough. Um, and actually also that it has the ability to be, to learn from and be re-engineered by comments that you receive from others in, in their various fields of expertise who can tell you how to make that better to perfect it. It's, it's very NASA-like in the sense that you need to constantly shark tank it um, and not be afraid that somehow what you came up with is too, uh, too pure, you know, or, or, you know, is too fragile, um, not to be, you know, not to be adapted as kind of part of the process. It's interesting to me, Roger, that in this, um, this fantastic story that we'll look forward to seeing more about um, uh, in, the, in the time ahead, um, that it begins um, not with an abstract idea. It doesn't begin with an abstract notion about finance or policy or public health or any number of the other kind of um, uh, you know, f form, forms of knowledge. It begins as an image uh, so design is central here, but as you say, it wasn't your image. It was an image that you attributed, you found in the work of another architect from another point in time. Almost, uh, I would say, resuscitated. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting to me. Is the notion of the the, the half life of images one of the one of the themes in the future of the American city conversations has been the role of the imaginary, like who who's authorized to imagine what the city looks like or how it might be organized, and what role is there for design in that process of imagination you know I, you know we, uh, what, we what 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 i often say is that you know we live in a culture where we um we're very good at you know individual outcomes so we've got very good efficient systems for individual property ownership uh, development rights capital uh, planning policy regulation zoning and at the same moment um we're not so good in thinking about collective outcomes. You know, we, we seem to have lost that ability as a culture. I, I think that there were moments maybe earlier in the 20th century where there were um, at least checks and balances, you know, in the, thinking about the American city, you know, even in a place like Los Angeles, there were, you know, rules of the road and there was a, a, sense, a sense of collectivity in terms of outcome. But it strikes me that um, in many American cities, we seem to have, you know, abandoned that idea about thinking collectively. Um, it's interesting to me, therefore, the, the role of the image and kind of recuperating and resuscitating this project that had been, you know, a kind of speculative architectural project. Um, and it's often the case, I think, that um, that kind of image can consolidate so much uh, desire or so much expression culturally um, that doesn't always attach to the, you know, the purely economic or the purely policy, you know. Um, you must have, or you may be still encountering just enormous regulatory uh, hurdles. No, I mean, what you're describing sounds fantastic, but it seems to also violate every rule or code or guideline or policy I can imagine about city making. 
It was um, it part of the process of um, of of evolution did involve uh, running it through the the building department and the planning department, having them do a thorough, uh, in effect, building check, a building code check, uh, flagging. Um, I'm thinking of two or three very specific things that we needed to figure out how to address, adapting the project um, in theory in order to do that, um, which were not, they were not major changes, they were tweaks to it, but it somehow is important that if you think about, if you go into the process understanding that it's going to be organic and keeping your eye on the ball so that you understand what things really matter and which things don't, um, then then it it will it will have a certain pliability to it as opposed to a brittleness that will permit it to be a bit elastic and even maybe necessarily um, get better or at least have a belief that the pos that it that it has the possibility of getting better, not just getting worse as a result of of that kind of input. I mean, one of the things that was really funny that came to us, for instance, was the fact that um, a lot of the sites where these building where these buildings could go um, that have not been developed because they're contaminated. And so we developed a foundation system of a waffle slab, which enabled, because it's only two stories and it's type five, us to build on top of the soil with a minimum of disturbance. While that may not seem like a really significant change, it, it literally liberated thousands of sites and put them into play as potential potentially buildable for this project, which are out of play for other, for other building types, for other um, typologies. And at the same time made the project um, more affordable because it didn't go into deep foundations and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of funny way in which instead of thinking about those things as things that are gonna hinder you, if you, if you think about them early enough on, they actually contribute to the radicalization of the project. Let me, I, maybe that's the best way to put it, that it actually can radicalize the project because it throws a wrench into it that moves it into a direction that you would have never thought of and makes it more innovative, more, you know, I guess to use the corporate, the tech term, more disruptive. Uh, because what you're thinking about if you're a tech company is how do I sell more of my units? So you have to kind of think about what all of those things are that will, again, liberate um, buyers or what have you, and that that could lead to something uh, interesting. Is a part of that process um, sharing with your, you know, building code reviewers and inspectors and sharing with the experts you have with respect to contamination that got you to the innovative slab strategy? Is a part of that sharing with them the, the social goal? Like, is it important that they, you know, understand why we're doing this? It absolutely is. And it's amazingly powerful um, because a lot of these building officials, they, they want to take credit for it too. They want a little piece of the credit for being part of an innovation. It doesn't require that much. And if, if they can help solve their little piece of the problem, then they've now got a share in the, in the credit. And you need to enable them to see that, it's, that if their bosses are telling them, you know, we really need to, to encourage more sustainable construction and so on and so forth, this could be, you know, this is something that they can actually claim credit for having um, satisfied 
through the through the work that they do as opposed to simply checking off uh, you know the boxes in terms of what the code is is kind of requiring it does take some work a, p- a part of what you're describing strikes me as um on the one hand it's 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 you know it's uh, very it's very smart psychology it's let's collectively deal with this set of social imperatives how can we work on this but it also uh to my mind um it represents a profound decentering of the ego of the architect. Now, I mean, uh, like everything that we've come to know about architects and their egos and, and the notion of the city builder and that classical idea of the architect holding the cultural capital and using by force of will their cultural capital to impose an image or a vision of the future of the city. This strikes me as a very, very kind of opposite to that approach in, in which the, the kind of humility of inviting uh, somebody in the kind of permitting process to help you make a better um make a better project. Um, that also strikes me as powerful in terms of its potential for building momentum. Yeah. And I have to say that I was part of that. You know, I, I had that problem also as, as a, you know, as having had my own firm where you have the, you have at least the illusion that you're completely in control of everything. Um, that's why you have your small office. And I think part of the learning process of Gensler that was enlightening was to realize that there was, this huge amount of horsepower that you had at your disposal and that in order to really take advantage of what it could do, I, I adopted um, to, to use a, another Angelino an analogy, uh, more of a film, a filmmaking uh, model than an architecture model where, where the director, the director of a film is not analogous to the way that an architect, that architects like to work the auteur model. They are not the same Uh, because in practice, film, filmmaking is really a product of a lot of different expertise coming together. The cinematographer has their own very particular styles. You hire them because they, you know, you already know what they're, they've done or what their capacities are. And because you've hired them for what they do, you listen to what they bring as well as the sound editor and so on. So that there is some degree of uncertainty built. There's a higher degree of uncertainty built into the actual film project itself, uh, the, out, the, the film that, that is the outcome. But you have a certain belief that because you have the right people put together, um, that as long as the goal is the same, the, it, it may not be in precise focus when you start, but you have a set of aims that you agree to so that when you're making individual decisions along the way, you're able to measure the, those various choices that you have to make against what you're deciding to do, uh, what, what, what your aim is at the end. And I, I have to say that it, that voyage of, that voyage has been something of a self-discovery to me as well, because I find that it's immensely satisfying to work according to a filmmaking model because it feels more like an adventure. You come across things and people come up with ideas that in some cases are better than ones you would have ever thought of yourself because they know more about a particular area than you do, yet you know what you're after. And so I think it expands, it leverages your own skills as a director um, beyond what I think an auteur can do, which is basically, you know, I have a foregone conclusion about what I'm looking for and I'm going to bend people to my will. I just feel like, um, and perhaps that's the inner urbanist in me, which is that you can't be an auteur 
anymore. Maybe you could at one time with regard to cities that in the end, the city will win if you want to make it into a, into a match. And instead I feel as though um, you have to try surfing it or at least playing um, Aikido with it. That's again, back to my point about, um, you know, urbanization versus urban design and learn how to tilt the odds of urbanization and the direction of urbanization toward better out, you know, toward outcomes that may be a little less precise according to what you first imagined to your point about the imaginary, but at the same time, they satisfy at the, in the end, what you intended. Um, and there's a surprise in that, which is kind of a, an amazing thing that it took you a little bit different a place, um, that you wanted to go. But if, but if you're really happy with where it ended up, um, and with the outcome, what does it matter how it compares to what you where you first thought you wanted to be? Does that really, does that matter in the end if the outcome is, is really outstanding? It strikes me that um, this way of working just to extend the, the analogy also requires you to use your, you know, your, your social capital, to use your platform, but also your, your, your human skills to bring enormous range of people together around something, right? This is, this is in, in many ways the opposite of what one thinks of as a kind of corporate practice, which is efficient and everyone does their piece in a kind of way. Um, many of the partners you've mentioned already, uh, you've suggested come from the philanthropic, the not-for-profit, the foundation side. Um, and so tell, tell us more as Urban Awning, to, to what extent are the partners necessary for this kind of uh, activity? Are they all coming out of the not-for-profit world? Is it purely foundation, philanthropically based? Or is, th is there also a logic of capital here as well? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, and one I may have to take a minute to think about. Offhand, I'm not thinking about many uh, for-profit developers uh, or for-profit entities um, that we've been dealing with. But I will say and maybe this is maybe this is relevant to you that um, that the nonprofit model of production of permanent supportive housing um, has reached has reached its end its terminus it has proven incapable of producing housing in a cost effective manner and has cost the public an enormous amount of money uh, has wasted an enormous amount of money largely because um, you know, and I, I, I do sound, you know, a little bit right of center here, but I think that a lot of, because there are so many strings attached to the monies that those nonprofits go after, um, it, it results in, in a higher cost than a nonprofit developer would ever tolerate. So it's, it's ironic that the market rate housing is being produced at a lower cost per square foot than housing for permanent uh, supportive housing for the homeless. As a result of that, um, there are a number of our clients now that are looking at new models of um, that are more um, hybridic with a, with a market rate, whereby they are mixing um, market rate uh, units together with um, with subsidized units, so that they can get off of the nipple of the subsidies. Um, for vouchers for rent, rental vouchers, by instead getting those from the people who are paying market rate for their units in the same project. And ironically, 
it's also better from a, obviously from the standpoint of social integration so that you aren't ghettoizing people who are recently homeless into a so-called PSH project and have it while others are in market rate projects, but you're actually getting a mix of people of varying incomes, which is really a better way to make cities in the first place. So that's still right now in the process of being forged. What's basically go going on is that uh, they are either part, the the permanent supportive housing developers are either partnering with market rate developers or they're creating uh, social impact investment funds where they're promising a 5% rate of return, which is a little bit lower uh, or a 4% than the six, six and a half percent rate that, that a market rate developer might be paying back um, to people in exchange for, you know, their feeling that they're doing the right thing, but they're still getting a return on their investment. A decade ago now, uh, you authored a book titled L.A. Under the Influence, The Hidden Logic of Property. And this book examined the kind of um, in internal or hidden logic of, of city growth. Um, uh, now in the role that you're in at Gensler, you have access to the people that are shaping the city in a way uh, that, um, that you didn't have when you were authoring that project. And you've been able to convene conversations amongst uh, those leaders that are shaping the future of the city. Tell, tell us more about that. It's, it's what's truly satisfying because now I have a feedback loop to attach to a, a kind of modus operandi. It was just, it was just missing the feedback loop. It, it understood how the feedback loop worked, but it needed the inputs. Um, that even dates back as early as 95 when I organized a show called Our American Dream about how to come up with higher density, um, higher density housing types for Los Angeles. Um, in um, in residential districts. And so it's particularly satisfying 25 years later to find not only that it has relevance, but that I'm now fully equipped to to go through that exercise in a way that will have real, uh, real impact. A part of what I find so interesting uh, about the work you're describing now um, are that these are topics, uh, these are sensibilities um, that were evident in your work uh, a decade or two ago, uh, predating uh, your present role. Um, you know, in, in, in those contexts, those were topics that could have been described as uh, academic or, or somehow intellectual. Um, but ultimately, your description of the hidden logic, the invisible powers of, of property and, and those kinds of forces that shape our cities uh, are really described in your work today as absolutely central to understanding the very real process of the shape of the city uh, going forward. The, the other one that I would add to that is, um, is the recognition that, um, that in addition to dealing with laws, there are also norms which I dealt with in the book as well, which is that norms, especially in an era of nimbyism, norms matter at least as much politically as laws do because they will come, they will come bite you. And I think if you can treat them, um, again, um, you know, to use the jujitsu analogy, you can use those in your favor if you understand them well enough, both as a means of addressing um, NIMBYism through through tactics such as quid pro quos, like um, we're putting a public space in the project. If you guys really don't want us to build a, a new tot lot, you know, playground on our property that you can all use, then you can, uh, you can oppose the project, but you're going to give up something as well. And understanding that kind of give and take between the two and also how 
the introduction of those kinds of things ends up being a disruptive but interesting uh, effect upon the project itself because it actually denormalizes, I don't know, it, it, makes, it makes something which might be purely typological more eccentric and unique as a result of that X factor, which, which I like because it's the presence of circumstance. A part of what I hear you describing is not just your interest in understanding these hidden logics, uh, but also, you know, using them, your literacy of them to unlock uh, social potential, uh, as well as uh, new possibilities for architecture and, and urban design. Um, there are new possibilities that emerge from this reading. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I have to connect it back to what you were talking about with the with the urban imaginary, because for me, that is at the source of the imaginary. I don't, I like to live, I like to start in the in vivo and take it into the in vitro as opposed to the other way around. Because the stuff that's cooking, it's like a boiling cauldron of, you know, messy stuff, like fascinating stuff full of bacteria out there that you can grow into monsters, you know, interesting monsters. Um, in vitro, but I think you cannot do it the other way around. It becomes too, it then becomes more of a personal exercise um, to take something. And I feel like it's, I don't know what the right word is, but it's, it seems it's a tragic path that's fraught with disappointment. If you, if you start purely in vitro, because you're going to be only operating in a way that in which you see the in vivo as being resistance to what you're doing. And I, I just feel that it's, it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe I was doing that for enough years that at some point, and maybe that's why the book to some extent was really transformational for me to begin to consider the possibility that there was another, another way of working um, by listening really carefully and observing really closely uh, what was going on in the city, looking at deviation as being the possibility for new norms um, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I know it's, it's probably very, you know, it's a, it's a pre-digital person's generation's way of looking at that, that, but, um, um, yeah. I'm interested to know, Roger, uh, to what extent or how often are you presenting or persuading communities of the social and urban potential of what you're proposing? Um, I'm, I, I obviously have to do it as you would guess, um, quite a lot, but I think the important part about that is that it's always in my head when I'm imagining things too, which is I'm always thinking, how am I going to explain this? How am I going to tell the story in a way that will, that other people will be vested in, even if my reasons for doing it were otherwise. There can be many uh, plot lines woven together within the same within the same story, but I have to be able to think to myself while it's coming together, how am I going to tell this to X group in a way that will seem like I did it for them? You know, Frank Gehry is kind of a master of this sort of thing himself, and I I spend a good deal of time like catching up on my, you know, on the Gary lore. Um, because I think that um, it's not only been a reason for his success, but I think it's been a reason for his constant evolution as an architect because he's open enough 
to figuring out how to keep write, rewriting the story in new ways um, that many architects are not capable of and keeping his work kind of vibrant. So that's given me a little bit of courage um, not to worry about whether or not it looks like something I, I would have done as much as do I like it, you know, on its own terms? Is it really smart? Is it interesting? You know, do I find it challenging? And everyone, you know, that's why the adventure part is important because each time you write a story, you know, a filmmaker, some filmmakers are hedgehogs where they're looking to tell the same story like a Scorsese over and over again, but others, it's really more a way of working or telling a story, but the script is always changing. And, um, and there's a kind of security in knowing that sooner or later, you know, your own sensibilities will enter into it. But what makes it challenging and interesting each time is the fact that the circumstances are different. So you're going to be, you're cooking something different with a, you know, with a different recipe. In addition to your, you know, longstanding interest in the uh, what you describe as the hidden logics of property and finance, um, I know that you've also had a an equally deep commitment to understanding the the logic and politics of planning, of zoning, of overlay districts, and and the kind of tools of art of urban planning. Uh, it strikes me that there are uh, many aspects of your uh, current work that are really um, pushing up against the traditional tools available to the urban planner. Are you sure, are you confident today that the uh, planning instruments that you have available uh, are up to the challenges that you're facing in a city like Los Angeles, uh, particularly given the challenges around access to housing and uh, vulnerability with respect to climate? Absolutely not. They're, they're a total and utter failure. Um, we have 32 planning districts, community districts, and um, the planning process is basically a mockery of planning in that it really is a form of finding out the planning department going through the process of basically um, submitting to paper or to digital, to an archive, what the community tells them it wants for itself, which is largely no development. And it's basically a, a kind of insurance policy or a cudgel to use against the particular um, uh, the, the particular dalliances of each council person who tends to look at each of their council districts as being a dominion where they can basically rule on what gets what's permitted and what isn't oftentimes with, you know, bribes and other favors lent. Um, so there is no real planning that goes on in Los Angeles. It's really just a form of enhanced community advocacy, but it's also ridiculously prolongated to the extent that they're only literally producing something like one or two of these community plans a year. So that means that they will not even get through the so-called replanning process fully for a period of something like 20 or 25 years, by which point it will be ready to do it all over again. So that's why, um, again, that's why I think that this issue of norms is really important because it's kind of a way of doing planning um, more through a for form of radical incrementalism, you know, by looking through typology and, um, and through scaling that you can transform the city or can transform portions of the city. I think Chris, I don't know if he told you about it, but he, he's got a competition that I think he's setting is coming out pretty soon about looking at gas station sites because there's going to be a whole turnover in obviously in, um, fossil fuel technology and then what is the import of that for 
for urban real estate. And that's the kind of thing I mean, which is that's potentially a form that is a more viable form of planning instrument, depending upon what's done. But as strategy, it makes much more sense to me than divvying up the city into 15 districts and just doing, you know, or 32 fairly, fairly arbitrarily and in a gerrymandered way and then determining what's right just purely on a political basis. In our conversations uh, here in the city of Los Angeles, uh, of course, we've um, encountered the, the city's recent um, um, new streetlight design competition, uh, as well as the city's uh, in, in initiatives around uh, the equitable distribution of shade uh, across all communities. Um, both of these projects uh, strike me as uh, remarkably powerful metaphors, uh, forms of distributed infrastructures, uh, you know, accessible to, to all communities, to all citizens. But Roger, are you suggesting that some communities are, are better represented or better prepared to engage in these processes of city building than others? Yes, uh, very clearly. And um, for the most part, that comes uh, more in the, um, in the form of being able to be more highly defended and effective in ensuring their own stability um, in the face of development. And so for instance, there are huge swaths of the, in the work that I was telling you we're doing for um, United Way, we were identifying with a data scientist where the available sites are and then looking at how many sites and how many beds, if you knew how many beds you could build on each of these sites, it would translate to. And to our utter shock and amazement, the valley contains almost none of these sites that are available because it is virtually 90, 95% uh, res single family residential. And unless there is state legislation, which there could be in a matter of another year um, to permit development of a certain higher density in residential zones throughout the state, um, it will remain completely defended um, from any kind of that, any kind of that which only puts a surcharge of pressure on all of the other areas that I was telling you about earlier which are, not, which are not as solidly encircled, which are more residualized politically, such as, such as, such as South LA. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, infighting going on amongst council offices where they all feel like it's not fair for certain council people to take the burden of, of responsibility for accommodating um, and solving the homeless crisis all in their district. And so they're all trying to hold their noses and jump into the pool at the same time by committing to a whopping, you know, 200 units in five years, which is nothing. It's so little that even the ones in the Valley could, could satisfy that, but it doesn't by any means solve, solve the bigger problem. What's also interesting, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit into politics here, but it's very interesting, uh, I find, that this is a problem that can only be solved at the state level, not at the local level, because the people who are voting on it are not subject to the anger of the people who are in their district like the council offices are. So, so being punted to the state is really, it's going to be at the state level where, where the radical change will happen, which we can only, we can only hope um, will, will occur because otherwise, I, I don't know, I think we're, we're reaching some kind of boiling point. Roger, if we project forward uh, from the present circumstance, uh, 
and imagine the city of Los Angeles and your work going forward. Uh, what are the possibilities that you're the most excited about, or what do you? What What are the largest challenges that you'll think you'll face uh, going forward? I, I mean, I'm I'm hoping that it's going to be the battles that we fight in the next several years regarding housing that are going to be that we're going to be setting down tracks for the next few years. I think that um, I like to say uh, along the lines of what I've been talking about with you over the past hour, that I'm, I'm not interested in continuing to do housing projects. That isn't my end goal to do project after project after project over these years. I was interested in creating something of a pipe pipeline and a platform for how that change and transformation um, continues beyond my my own professional career in order to have a lasting impact on the city of Los Angeles. I'm hopeful that in the next few years, especially with the move toward um, an emphasis uh, rightfully on social equity, that that will start moving toward, uh, as I was mentioning, the issue of resources alone, that we move from the from private dwelling to actually how we come up with some, some more effective means of creating, um, uh, I don't want to say amenities, but um, things that, that really affect the quality of life for, um, for private citizens of Los Angeles. That is really, that is really yet to be fully explored um, beyond the post-war model of you know, having a little play structure in our backyard or a pool, meaning Los Angeles has really yet to emerge from an adolescence of privatization um, by ho home by home of, pub of public space and to really deal more seriously with the idea of how to create public space and, um, and collective life uh, through new models that maybe will undoubtedly be involved the the private sector because there simply aren't public resources. And I, I'm not wholly sure how that's going to happen. There is a, somebody that we're in conversations with right now. There are a couple of other clients as well who started a, he's raised $165 million in a social impact fund to, um, to transform an area that um, of South Los Angeles through a private, it's private investment um, through this initial project he calls the Beehive. Um, and he's very successful, kind of African-American entrepreneur who went to college and also to grad school at Penn. And he's trying to do this for, for uh, basically for community of color, but using what, you know, using a model that he learned by working in affluent white areas, but in a way that's more socially uh, leverage through philanthropic money and other private money. And I, I don't know the, all the insides and outs because we've just recently met him, but um, I, I want to follow these people to the, you know, like being a stay upstream. I try to identify people who are operating in that area right now, um, trying to look at these new models of realization and implementation. And then I, I get in touch with them and I say, how, you know, can we help? How can we be a part of this? Um, yeah, USC has a new school of um, entrepreneurship. I don't know if you heard about this, but it's the Young Iovine School of uh, Academy. It's called the IYA, and it's Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, you know, from Beats Headphones. 
Um, so they started this, and I think it's really interesting, Charles, because the president had them, he, they built a new building with the funds that they provided, and the president wanted it to be put in front of the architecture building so that nobody could see, because he was more proud of this, what this represented as being the future of USC than the, than the architecture building. Um, but it's, um, but I think it was cast with the idea of trying to figure out new models of dealing with underserved areas, but according to for-profit, with for-profit models of investment, um, not nonprofits, because there's just not enough money to, to really have that kind of, to, to see that kind of change. So, um, I'm very interested in seeing where all of that can go. And I think it's, it becomes, it becomes a national, it becomes a national scale kind of model very quickly because I think a lot of these people like him are working in different cities. They're, they're testing it in one city, but they're also thinking about working in other places like Detroit um, and, um, and Atlanta at the same time, if it works in Los Angeles. So, um, so I don't know. I, I find that super interesting. I um, I feel as though the the low hanging fruit of the future of the city exists in these underserved areas because they are the least stable, and they're for better or for worse. Meaning they could get worse a lot faster, but they could also get a lot better and more interesting faster than let's say Brentwood or Beverly Hills because those have reached old age, so to speak, um, you know, whereas these others are still emergent. I think it's, that is why I think it's, it's interesting because um, the permanent supportive housing, Gensler, we decided to go after permanent supportive housing and affordable, not just because it was the right thing to do, because, but because the process of funding um, is more, uh, allows more for innovation because it's driven by like, how do you bring the cost down? Um, meaning it's not just about making materials cheaper. It's gotta be a re rethinking. Whereas workforce housing or, um, or the middle market type of housing is, is the least subject to that because it's kind of got, developers have that down pat and they know how to make money doing it. That and odd, oddly enough, the very upper end echelon of housing are most fruitful for innovation and so it's it's strategic as well as ideological on my part to kind of want to work in those in those areas. Roger Sherman, thanks very much. My pleasure, Charles. Always great to see you again. I hope I hope it'll be more often. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.